good evening. Um, thank you very much for, for coming along tonight. Um, I'm April McMahon. Um, I'm currently head of the School of Philosophy, Psychology and Language Sciences. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to this Enlightenment lecture tonight. Um, one tiny piece of housekeeping, and I'm sure you've done this already, but if I could just ask you to switch off your mobile phones, please. Um, otherwise, I'm sure we'll get lots of lovely noises, but they might be a tiny bit disruptive. This is the second in this year's series of Enlightenment lectures at the University of Edinburgh. Some of you may have been here just um, last week um, elsewhere in the university to hear Stephen Pinker speak. And in previous years, we've hosted very successful lectures by um, international visitors, including Irene Kahn, um, Joseph Stiglitz and Daniel Dennett and we've also had some of our own um, distinguished professors um, at the University of Edinburgh including Tom Devine and Ian Wilmot. And the university's aim with this series is to emulate um, the debates and discussions of the 18th century Enlightenment but to bring it bang up to date with cutting-edge 21st century topics um, with lectures from world-leading politicians and philosophers and scientists and public intellectuals. And in keeping with the university's commitment to public engagement with our work, we want to offer the opportunity to our wider community outside the university to hear and engage with the key thinkers and influencers in today's debates. And so far, more than 5,000 people have attended our Enlightenment lectures, and you will be adding to that total tonight, so thank you again. This Enlightenment theme makes it particularly appropriate that I'm welcoming you tonight, not just on behalf of the University and the College of Humanities and Social Science, but also um, on behalf of two of our highly interdisciplinary research centres here. And the first of those is Inogen, which began in 2002 and has 10 years funding from the Economic and Social Research um, Council. And it focuses on the new life sciences and their governance. And the second is the Genom Genomics Policy and Research Forum, which links up social scientists and scientists working across the entire range of genomic science and technology. Both of those centres connect research to business and to policy and decision making. And I'd particularly like to thank Dave Weald from Inogen um, and his team, and Steve Yearley from the Genomics Forum and their team and his team for all their help with tonight's event. And it's now my great pleasure to ask Professor Steve Yearley to introduce tonight's speaker. Thank you. Thank you very much, April. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be able to welcome you uh, this evening, and even more delighted to be able to welcome Professor Walter Willett, whom I'll describe and will welcome in a second. As April has explained, this is part of the Enlightenment Lecture Series, uh, but one that's also sponsored by Inogen and the Genomics Forum. These two, uh, I mean, part of my job is explaining to people what the forum is, and I. I Although I've been doing the job for nearly three years, I'm only just getting the hang of this. But essentially, Inogen and the Forum are both concerned with the social aspects of contemporary life science. Now, recently, there have been major advances in nearly all aspects of the life sciences, uh, plant biology, 
understanding of crops and biofuels, uh, advances in medicine, advances in veterinary science, and uh, as was mentioned, uh, Ian Wilmot and uh, domestic um, farm animal cloning. But all of these advances in life sciences also have their social aspects. For example, there are questions about uh, public attitudes to and the regulation of and the acceptance of uh, all sorts of new technologies and new products and new types of food and so on. There are questions about, and I think key questions for the public, about who to trust and where do you get authoritative knowledge from. There are lots of diet books, which ones do you believe? There's lots of uh, advice that you get, who should you listen to? And then there's also the question of how do you actually implement that uh, in your life? Uh, I mean, you may need, you may understand what the dietary recommendations are, but then how do you fit those into uh, your life and your shopping practices? How do you persuade your children that they want to copy you uh, in having this uh, healthy diet? And how do you try to regulate uh, what your children uh, or even your parents do uh, when you're not monitoring their behaviour? Now, in all of these things, there's been a, a kind of, in some ways, slightly confusing development in society. There were lots of things that used to just be the way they were. You were grateful to get food and you were happy to eat it, at least for uh, many parts of the population. But now we have increasing amounts of information telling us what is good to eat, and it often seems that just when you've learned the latest dietary instructions, they've been subtly changed, and last year's diet is no longer uh, this year's diet. So there's a very uh, key that issue there about what we're supposed to be responsible for. I mean, we're increasingly held to be responsible for our own health, our own bodies, but where do we get authoritative information uh, to make those kind of decisions and to live in that kind of responsible and upright way we're all encouraged to do? Well, there's no better person to help us make sense of these issues uh, than Professor Walter Willett. Uh, as you'll have seen on the information which uh, advertised this uh, lecture, Walter is from the Harvard School of Public Health, where he's the Frederick John Stair Professor of Epidemiology and Nutrition. And his background, uh, he has produced an enormous number of scholarly articles, uh, and these are mostly concentrated in two areas, the connections between diet, health, and lifestyle, and the connection between nutritional factors and chronic disease. In addition to all of this uh, enormous amount of scholarly work, uh, Professor Willett has produced two bestsellers. One is called Eat, Drink and Be Healthy, and the other is called Eat, Drink and Weigh Less. Every time I look at this, I, I keep thinking it's called Eat, Drink and Work Less, which uh, <laughs> probably what would happen to me, but it's actually Eat, Drink and Weigh Less, which uh, I think is a, a key book. Now, uh, I'm going to invite him to come and speak in just a second. He'll speak for about 45 minutes, and then we'll have 15 to 20 minutes uh, of questions and answer, which, again, I'll be chairing. Uh, and the three people at the front with the attractive red T-shirts will be distributing the mic around. So when I call on you to speak, do you mind waiting for them? Because we need to be have the mic in order to get the question as well as the answer. So maybe now you would all join with me in welcoming Professor Walter Willett, who's going to speak to us on the optimal diet for 21st century living. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, uh, Professor Yearly. It's a great pleasure to be here, our first time 
in Scotland. And I was warned by many people about the weather in uh, Scotland, but it's been sunny and bright, so that's 100% of the time that we've been here. Uh, and we look forward to the next several weeks. I'm going to try to give a bit of an overview of some of the issues in nutrition and health that have emerged as, I think, being the most important during the last 10 or 15 years. Clearly, uh, nutrition is very complex, and as you are well aware, as Professor Yearly has also mentioned, you can buy many thousands of books uh, telling you to eat one way or another, and sort, how to sort this out has been a great challenge. Uh, I, as a bit of a background, uh, this is what I realized back in the 1970s when I first started studying nutrition and becoming interested in the long-term consequences was this, the fact that people were being told to eat this or don't eat that. And when you scratch the surface, there was virtually no data to support what people were saying. It was almost like religion, and maybe in some sense it's uh, fitting this, this be an enlightenment lecture. We're trying to get away from the religion of, um, of nutrition. Uh, and what was really missing was solid data. And so what I've tried to do since uh, uh, the late 70s was develop studies that would provide a, an empirical basis for making dietary choices that would, would uh, best enhance our health. I think it's useful to begin this story a few decades ago uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, some epidemiologists were starting to look at the question of, of the determinants of cardiovascular disease and cancer. One of the early studies was conducted by Ansel Keys and his colleagues. It was called the Seven Countries because they looked at 14 populations of about 1,000 men each in seven different countries. And in this study, what they did was use standardized definitions of coronary heart disease to look at the, just the basic rates of coronary heart disease in these different areas. And what was most important and most striking was that there was about a tenfold gradient from the highest rates up in East Finland to the lowest rates down in Crete. Just the fact that there were these huge differences raised the obvious question of why. Uh, there were some other studies going on at about this time looking at groups who migrated from places like these Japanese populations to the United States, which, which would have been about there during that time. And in not too many years, those Japanese, uh, mi uh, those migrants adopted the same rates as European Americans living in the United States, which is a very powerful statement because it says these huge differences in other migrant studies were showing the same thing. These huge differences were not due to genetic factors. They were due to some non-genetic factors. Uh, and diet was a very uh, possible part of the explanation. There were some clues that saturated fat might be important, and they, in the seven countries, saw this very strong correlation between saturated fat and risk of coronary heart disease. But Keyes and his colleagues recognized that there were so many other differences, differences in uh, physical activity, smoking, other aspects of diet, for example, that we couldn't be sure that saturated fat was really the causal factor and not, uh, that it wasn't confounded by some other com set of variables. 
at about the same time, other epidemiologists were looking at cancer rates around the world. And similarly, there were huge differences, uh, this being breast cancer, but similar differences were seen for most of the other cancers that are common in Western populations. The affluent North American and European populations were up here, and then traditional societies and uh, Asian, traditional Asian countries were uh, at much lower risk of having uh, breast cancer. And again, migrant studies were done, and people from Japan moving to the United States uh, developed breast cancer rates at about the same rates as the US. In fact, they're overshooting now. Well, these uh, migrants for breast cancer took two or three generations to catch up with the European Americans living in the United States. It wasn't as quickly, the rates did not change as quickly as did rates of coronary heart disease. But still, the answer was the same. There's very powerful non-genetic factors that are the primary determinants of these major differences in cancer rates. And I could show slide after slide for uh, colon cancer, prostate cancer, and the same picture emerges time and time again. Now, even though one should be very cautious about interpreting the relation between fat intake and breast cancer and other cancers, the this was repeated so many times that there became a very strong belief that dietary fat was the primary factor underlying the high rates of breast cancer and other common cancers in Western countries. And uh, also, there was some belief that uh, saturated fat was very important for cardiovascular disease. And even though it might be saturated fat, it was too complicated to talk about specific types of fat, and we should just focus on reducing total fat in the diet. And for those two reasons, the main, uh, the main dietary advice during the 1990s was to reduce fat in the diets. And this is the U.S. Food Guide Pyramid. And right up at the top, it says we're supposed to use fats and oils, all types, sparingly. And that was the main number one uh, enemy in the eyes of most nutritionists during that period. And of course, we have to eat something so that if we don't eat fat, we have to, by default, eat large amounts of carbohydrates. So we were told we should load up, actually have up to 11 servings a day of things like uh, white bread and white rice and uh, crackers and uh, cornflakes. And if that wasn't enough starch, they actually put potatoes there as a vegetable. So we could have up to 13 servings of starch a day. And this so-called complex carbohydrates or starch really became the poster children of nutritionists, and we were advised to eat lots of those. There are some other curious things about the U.S. Food Guide Pyramid also, that red meat and poultry and fish and dried beans and eggs and nuts were all lumped together in one group as though it made no difference. And there's this other curious area about dairy. We were told we should have two to three servings which from, uh, from growing up in the Midwest in the United States, that seems perfectly natural, but if you look around the world, most adults don't drink milk uh, 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 in Africa, South America, and most parts of Asia, and yet their bones are not falling apart. Uh, so is it really necessary that we have two to three servings of dairy per day? The food manufacturers at first, uh, uh, resisted the idea that we should uh, that products should be lower in fat but they quickly 
realized that sugar is cheaper than fat. And so thousands of new products came on the market where the calories were about the same. They were low fat, but high in sugar, and you could sell them as a premium and pay less to make them and laugh all the way to the bank. But the real question was, were these new products that were low fat or fat free really any better for us? And uh, even mayonnaise became available in a fat free version. Uh, my colleagues and I begin to worry about this, though, in the mid-1980s, mainly initially uh, uh, on the basis of some work done by colleagues in the Netherlands, uh, Drs. Mensik and Catan. And uh, they did a simple controlled experiment, about 50 young, healthy adults, uh, and they were fed controlled diets. Uh, so they were, uh, they were given the food and required to eat everything that they were fed. They were started off on a typical Western diet with about 40% of calories from fat. And then 10% of calories from saturated fat were removed and they were replaced either with 10% of calories from olive oil, which made it more like a Mediterranean type diet, or with 10% of calories from complex carbohydrates. So this was really a test of a more Mediterranean type diet with a lower fat, higher carbohydrate type diet. And I mention this because this has been replicated time and time again. It's very predictable. If you look at total cholesterol, your total blood cholesterol actually is a little bit lower, not much difference, but slightly lower on the olive oil diet, uh, whereas there's a, an important difference in HDL, the, the beneficial cholesterol, so that on high carbohydrates, uh, carbohydrate diets, HDL cholesterol falls where it stays the same when one type of fat replaces another. And somewhat paradoxically, on high-carbohydrate diets, fasting triglycerides go up. And we know that high triglycerides and low HDL predict higher rates of coronary heart disease, so that at face value, you'd actually think you'd be better off on a higher-fat diet than on the lower-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. The situation also became more complicated by recognition that trans fat is an important part of the picture as well. And this had really been off the radar screen of most people in the nutrition and medical community. Uh, if you haven't seen trans fat, sort of looked at, eye, looked at it eye to eye, this is what it looks like when, you, when restaurant suppliers uh, sell it to uh, restaurants uh, for deep frying. These are 40 pound block, 60 pound blocks of partially hydrogenated soybean oil. And it's very cheap, a major international commodity. And this is formed by a process called partial hydrogenation, where the natural liquid vegetable oil is heated up to a high temperature and hydrogen is bubbled through it. And the naturally bent fatty acids straighten out, pack together more tightly, and you get these uh, blocks. Now, why does the food industry do it? Two reasons. One is that it's a cultural reason, uh, going back to some of the sociological issues here, that the traditional culture of Northern Europe and hence the United States is that fats are solid. We have lard and butter. Those are the fats that you get from living in a, in a cold climate where you can produce those kind of fats locally. And so when the process was developed to extract vegetable oils from uh, soybean and corn, uh, in a culinary sense, people didn't know what to do with it. It was much better to have vegetable shortening, Crisco in the United States. I don't know if you had the same, what you called it here, but, uh, and also margarine. 
uh, made out of vegetable oil. It, it had the look and feel of lard and butter. Um, so it was, in some sense, a cultural trap. I think if we had been uh, in, uh, had a southern European tradition, we would have just taken that liquid vegetable oil, added some green food coloring and olive oil flavoring, and had sort of fake olive oil. But we had to make it look like butter and lard. But the other reason why partial hydrogenation is used is that the uh, process reduces the double bonds in the fatty acids, and for that reason they become rancid less easily. They oxidize and become rancid less easily, so the shelf life of the other product is prolonged. Anyway, these are the, the products that, uh, that you're seeing here, and the real question for us is uh, what does it do to our health? Now, uh, these are good for many things. Uh, you could build buildings out of them, you could do sculpture with them, uh, but really what do they do to our health? That's the critical issue. Now, I used that line about sculpture a year or so ago, and uh, out in Berkeley giving a lecture, and the students went out and had a transfat sculpture contest, so uh, they made some pretty creative things here, and you sort of wonder what Michelangelo could have done if he had had transfat. Uh, you could uh, made made more carvings in a day. But again, Mensik and Catan did the key metabolic studies here, uh, again, feeding carefully a few dozen uh, young, healthy people. And here they compared trans fat with saturated fat, gram for gram. And they saw for total cholesterol about a 6% increase at where, at, with trans fat, whereas on saturated fat there was about a 12% increase. And so if you just look at total cholesterol, you get misled. You think trans fat's maybe a little better than saturated fat. But if you break cholesterol down into its fractions, we know that LDL is the bad fraction, and there's a pretty similar increase. Whereas for HDL, trans fat turns out to be the only type of fat that reduces HDL cholesterol. And it's really the ratio of LDL to HDL that best predicts risk of heart disease, and there are trans fats almost twice as bad on a gram-for-gram -gram basis as a saturated fat. And like most new findings, this was very controversial at first, but it's been replicated time and time again. Probably about a dozen studies have all shown the same uh, effect of trans fats on the LDL-HDL ratio, which would make you concerned that this was even considerably worse than saturated fat. Another general concept, though, though that we've come to recognize over the last a couple of decades is that there are many pathways that lead from diet to coronary heart disease. And so far I've only talked about diet acting through its effect on blood lipid fractions. But we also know that diet can act through influences on blood pressure, thrombotic tendency, which means the tendency to form clots which block the flow in the coronary arteries, uh, insulin resistance which leads to diabetes and then coronary heart disease and oxidation, uh, homocysteine levels in the blood, which are related to higher risk of cardiovascular disease, and endothelial uh, dysfunction and inflammation. And There's a lot of attention now to inflammation as a pathway to heart disease. And then very important, uh, ventricular irritability and arrhythmia. And this is important because most people who die of heart disease actually die of a cardiac arrhythmia. The heart beats so fast the blood no, is long, no longer pump through, and we have what we call sudden cardiac death. And obviously, uh, if something would help prevent that, uh, it would be very important. And it turns out diet has an important effect. Uh, now, just one example why it's important to consider that there's many pathways 
is that we've learned just in the last few years that trans fat not only has a bad effect on the blood lipid fractions, but it also increases inflammatory factors throughout the body. And one, one important factor is C-reactive protein that's been related to higher risk of coronary heart disease. So with the higher trans fat, there's about a doubling of the level of C-reactive protein uh, in the blood. And therefore, you'd expect trans fat to have even a more adverse effect on heart disease than you would predict just by its effect on the LDL-HDL ratio. So the point is that we would also, it's also important to look not just at how trans fat or any aspect of diet affects these intermediary factors, but directly look at how trans fat is related to heart disease because that combines the effects that may be synergistic or antagonistic through all of these different pathways. So our group has set up several large studies. Now, one, going back to the uh, basic question uh, that Dr. Yearly posed was, how do you get at truth? There is a common sort of paradigm that the best way to get at truth is to do a large randomized trial. But the reality is for most of the important things that we'd like to learn about, uh, it's really not feasible to do randomized trials, and they're often very likely to give you the wrong answer. Uh, partly because for, say, just trans fat intake, if you were studying that and asking how does that affect risk of heart disease, you'd have to take tens of thousands of people, randomly assign some of them to high trans fat and low trans fat, and you ha would have a very hard time getting that through an ethical committee. And then you'd have to make sure that people stay in that high trans fat or low trans fat diet for years. And the reality is that's, that just is a, it's very difficult to do, probably unethical, and just isn't going to happen. So the next best thing will usually be to set up large prospective studies. So that's what our group has worked on for the last 30-some years. The first was the nurses' health study, where we enrolled about 121,000 women, all registered nurses, back in 1976, mainly at that time to look at oral contraceptives and risk of breast cancer. There was a big question about that, and that story is still unfolding. But uh, I realized this would be an excellent place to gather dietary information since these women were highly cooperative and enthusiastic participants. And so we started collecting dietary data back in 1980. And as time has gone on, we've updated diet now every four years. And so we can keep track of changes in the food supply and individual preferences and, and their food choices as uh, time moves on. And then importantly here, and in contrast to the international comparisons, we can collect data on potentially confounding variables like smoking and physical activity, medication use, other medical conditions, and we can adjust for those when we want to look, say, at trans fat or some other aspect of diet in relation to cancer or heart disease. So uh, the nurses in the study have really been the heroes here because after 30 years, still 90% of them are sending back questionnaires and providing very unique uh, long-term information. The nurses' health study only included women, so we added 52,000 men in 1986, and we've been following them in a similar way. And then because many leads were telling us that diet might be acting on breast cancer risk earlier in life, we enrolled a younger group of women who were 25 to 42 uh, back in 1986 excuse me, 1989, and we've been following them similarly. 
And I want to emphasize that this is the work of many people. Frank Spicer started the Nurses' Health Study back in 1976, and I've listed uh, some of my colleagues here, and I'll mention others, but this is really the, a collaborative group with input and hard work uh, on the part of many different people. Uh, this is what we saw after 14 years of follow-up when we looked first in detail at different types of fat in the diet and risk of coronary heart disease. During this 14 years, about 1,000 women had died of a heart attack or been hospitalized for a heart attack. And so here we're looking at increasing intakes of different types of fat in the diet. This is uh, saturated fat, monounsaturated, polyunsaturated fat. This is percent of energy for each of these, replacing the same number of calories from carbohydrates. And perhaps not surprisingly from what I've told you, by far the worst was trans fat. And surpri somewhat surprising to many people, saturated fat was only weakly related to risk of heart disease if you compared it to carbohydrate intake. But monounsaturated fat, and even more importantly, polyunsaturated fat, was related to lower risk of coronary heart disease. So you had basically bad fats and good fats, and if you looked at total fat, they were balancing each other out, so total fat was not related to risk of heart disease. And it, but if you really want to reduce the risk, you replace these fats with mono and polyunsaturated fat. And then there is quite a substantial uh, uh, benefit, which fits with what we've seen uh, looking at the intermediate variables like uh, inflammatory factors and cholesterol fractions. Now, probably many of you are aware that polyunsaturated fats come in two main families. Uh, the omega-3, which are also called N3 fatty acids, and omega-6 fatty acids, uh, both of them polyunsaturated fatty acids. And the omega-3 fatty acids, uh, often, uh, we mostly we think of those coming from fish. Of course, salmon is a great source of omega-3 fatty acids. And they seem to have a special role for preventing cardiac arrhythmias. And this has been seen in many different studies now. This is a study, it's actually a different group from Harvard, uh, looking at physicians, where we collected blood in 1982 and then followed people for 10 years. And during that time, about 80 men uh, developed sudden cardiac death. They basically dropped dead. And then we went back to their freezer, pulled out their blood, and pulled out a match, the blood of a matched control who remained healthy and analyzed them for fatty acids. And what we saw was about an 80% lower risk of sudden cardiac death in the men with the highest amount of omega-3 fatty acids in their blood. But in, in reality, fish are not the only sources of omega-3 fatty acids that uh, some plant oils and rapeseed oil, common in Europe, and soybean oil are actually good sources of omega-3 fatty acids as well. Uh, but you may remember that the food industry is out there trying to destroy them by partial hydrogenation because if you don't destroy them, the products tend to have, made from them tend to have longer, or tend to have shorter shelf lives because they've gone rancid. Uh, one of the few uh, vegetable oils uh, food products made from soybean oil to escape partial hydrogenation though has been, soy, has been uh, salad dressing. And that's because if you partially hydrogenated the oil and the salad dressing and then you put it in the refrigerator, it would become solid. And of course, that would be pretty inconvenient. So uh, the oils in salad dressing in general are healthy oils and uh, have not been partially hydrogenated. And we've looked at uh, those in relation to 
sudden cardiac death and seen a, also seen a lower risk. Oops, sorry. Uh, also seen about a 50% lower risk of fatal cardiac disease among women who consumed the most uh, salad dressing, the full fat salad dressing. And so it's sort of ironic that the Heart Association was telling people to use the fat-free products when it's really the full fat products, uh, salad dressing products that are beneficial and if you give them up probably you're going to have higher risk of coronary heart disease. So instead of saying, you know, put the salad dressing on the side, don't use it, I say dump that salad dressing on the salad. Uh, your salad will taste better, you'll better absorb the micronutrients, and almost for sure you'll have a lower risk of cardiac death. The latest major study to look at dietary fat and coronary heart disease was the Women's Health Initiative. This was the most expensive study ever done. It uh, cost about $2 billion, and it was a, random, a randomized trial assigning 48,000 women to a low-fat diet or their regular diet. And it is, uh, we could talk about this study for an hour or so, uh, but basically it showed no benefit for coronary heart disease. This is a, the, the control group and the uh, low-fat group are really indistinguishable in their increasing cumulative risk of coronary heart disease over a nine-year period. The uh, qualifications come here, of course, uh, asking the question whether women really followed the low-fat diet. And even despite this huge cost, there's really, I think, uh, serious doubts as whether or not they actually, as to whether they actually went on a low-fat diet because their HDL cholesterol and triglycerides did not change as they would have been expected to do. So to summarize this little part of my talk, uh, coronary heart disease rates can be dramatically reduced by nutritional means, but this will not be achieved by replacing saturated fat with carbohydrate, and we should abandon recommendations regarding the percentage of energy from fat and avoid pejorative references to fat or fatty foods. And unfortunately, the, during the 90s, the thing that nutritionists used to like to do the most was say, avoid fat or use low-fat products. There's really no scientific basis for that. And advice about dietary fat should focus on replacing saturated fat and trans fat with vegetable oils, including sources of omega-3 fatty acids. Now, interestingly, we've also looked in these same studies at type 2 diabetes, and there we've seen a virtually identical pattern whereby uh, trans fat is related to higher risk of type 2 diabetes and polyunsaturated fat is related to lower risk of type 2 diabetes. So again, replacing trans fat with fats high in polyunsaturated fatty acids is likely to have a, a beneficial effect for type 2 diabetes. <clears throat> now, going back to one of my original slides, of course, one of the major reasons for advice to reduce fat in the diet was that this would be expected to have a major impact on breast cancer risk. And so we've looked at that from the beginning in the Nurses' Health Study. Uh, this is after 20 years of follow-up now, and here we're looking at postmenopausal women where there was the strongest belief that fat would adversely affect risk, and we've just not seen any hint of a higher risk of breast cancer with higher fat intake here, 50% of calories versus less than 20% of calories. And a number of other prospective studies have looked at this, and the results have been very consistent in finding little or no association with, and that's with fat intake during midlife or later. But 
if, as you may remember, we started the Nurses' Health Study too to look at diet during an earlier part of adult life and in relation to breast cancer risk. And there the picture that's emerged has been a little different. We still don't see a relationship for total fat, but unlike the original Nurses' Health Study, we do see an increased risk for animal fat intake, but not for vegetable fat. So it suggests there's, it's, this is not an effect of fat per se, but probably something else that's coming along with animal fat. And that has gotten us, there are many possibilities, uh, but as we've delved into it, the uh, hormones that are present in animal fat uh, have become more con of greater concern to me. And this is not just the hormones that are used to uh, increase milk consumption, bovine somatotropin, for example, but uh, in dairy fat, for example, in modern dairy production, cows are pregnant most of the time while they're being milked, and that's not normal mammalian behavior. And during pregnancy, their endogenous hormones, their natural hormones that they're producing are much higher, and those are all coming out in the milk. So the, the milk that we consume now is not the same as the milk that people drank 100 years ago. And uh, it's turning out to be a challenging area to pursue, but it's something that I think does need to be examined. Uh, nevertheless, it, uh, there's, I think, good reason to, uh, this provides one more good reason to emphasize vegetable fats rather than animal fats in the diet. Already, if you replace the animal fats with the vegetable fats, it's clear you'll have lower risk of heart disease and lower risk of breast cancer may be another benefit, but that is, uh, that's one study and it still needs to be uh, examined further. Now I'm going to move on to some other areas of the pyramid fairly quickly. And of course, one of the important areas is fruit and vegetable intake. And during the 90s, you also probably heard that this eating more fruits and vegetables was a major way to reduce cancer risk. Uh, the, uh, in the United States, there, were, there was a campaign that said you could have 40 or 50% lower risk of cancer if you ate five servings of fruits and vegetables per day. Unfortunately, that evidence was om almost entirely based on retrospective studies that are s really uh, a setup for getting uh, biased answers. When you ask people who already have cancer, for example, what they ate before, the diagnosis is likely to distort uh, or influence their response. Uh, so, and as prospective studies have come in more recently, like the Nurses' Health Study, but many other studies in many countries, they've really not supported those strong apparent benefits of fruits and vegetables for cancer risk. So we, a couple of years ago, decided to, lump, to look at this broadly and, and combined all cancers in our studies, both in men and women, uh, and looked then at fruit and vegetable intake. So here you can see, looking at total cancer incidence, even having eight or more servings a day was not associated with any lower risk than uh, having fewer than one and a half servings of fruits and vegetables per day. That doesn't mean that there's absolutely nothing going on because if we dig down more deeply and look at specific vegetables and specific cancers, we do see some benefits, but when they're all combined, uh, that, pr that really gets lost in the wash. Uh, but I do want to make the, I don't want to cause any confusion here that eating fruits and vegetables is still a very good thing to be doing. Uh, interestingly, the payoff though is, looks like it will be mainly for cardiovascular disease because here in the same population using the same dietary information, we do see substantially lower risk 
of coronary heart disease, about a 30% lower risk of myocardial infarction or heart attacks and strokes combined. Uh, also, what is a little interesting here is that the biggest payoff is really a, seems to be at the low end, moving from less than one and a half servings to uh, three to five servings a day seems to give almost the same benefit as going all the way up to eight servings of fruits and vegetables per day. So I think that's encouraging because for some people this seems like going to the moon, eating that many fruits and vegetables. Uh, but just adding one or two a day looks like there's a, likely to be an important benefit for cardiovascular disease. Then I want to talk about carbohydrates a little bit. And this area has been, until fairly recently, fairly neglected by nutritionists. There was so much focus on fat. Uh, but as it's turning out, it seems as though the type of carbohydrate is what's really important, just like it's the type of fat, not the total amount of fat in the diet. And when we did look at carbohydrates until fairly recently, mostly we focused on fiber intake. And actually, it turns out that was a uh, pretty good idea because very consistently higher intake of cereal fiber has been related to lower risk of coronary heart disease. Uh, these, this is our study in women, the nurses health study, health professionals follow-up, men in the health professionals follow-up study. In both studies about a 30% lower risk and there are about a dozen studies that have looked at this and they, and they see lower risk with higher intake of fiber. But one important part is that the evidence is much stronger and clearer for cereal fiber, meaning fiber from whole grains, than it is for fiber from vegetables or from fruit. So I think what's happening here is that cereal fiber is really acting as a marker for all the minerals and vitamins that get stripped away from whole grains when you refine them and remove the fiber. You're also removing the large majority of many minerals and vitamins and ending up with this nice white flour. Uh, but that seems to be, have been a pretty unfortunate step in what we call in our modern food supply. There is though another aspect of carbohydrates that appears to be very important, although it's been very controversial. I think that's, it's becoming less controversial now as the importance is more widely recognized. And that's the concept of glycemic index. How many people here are familiar with glycemic index? Great. It's, um, Good to hear, see about half the people raise their hands. And I, I think if I had asked that question five years ago, probably very few hands would have gone up. Uh, this, there is more recognition, and I think that's appropriate. For those of you who aren't familiar, very briefly, uh, this is what happens when we eat a high glycemic index food. It basically means it's an easily digested carbohydrate because uh, starches, and here we're talking mostly about starches, are just long chains of glucose molecules. And if we uh, eat a, 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 a form of starch that's easily digested, then the uh, starch molecule is broken down into its glucose units very quickly. And this happens if the carbohydrate is, uh, the starch is pulverized into small particles so the gastric enzymes can just attack those particles and quickly break them into uh, glucose molecules. So that would be uh, having something like uh, a bagel, we were told, is a healthy breakfast because it's fat-free. But it's basically white starch and, and highly refined white starch. And very quickly, 
If you eat that, your blood glucose goes shooting up. And our body doesn't want high blood glucose levels, so our pancreas pumps out a big blast of insulin, and that quickly brings the glucose levels down, and then the uh, uh, insulin follows correspondingly. Oftentimes, by three or four hours, people are getting a little hypoglycemic. So this rapid decline and a little bit of hypoglycemia generate hunger. And of course, that could be a problem if you're constantly getting a signal to, if, of hunger and, uh, and food is all too nearby. Now, this is the alternative, what happens when you eat a low glycemic carbohydrate. This is more like sustained release glucose. And this would happen, for example, if you eat something like pasta, where the carbohydrate is tightly compressed and the gastric enzymes can't digest it as quickly. Or if you eat an apple, where the carbohydrates are locked up in the cells uh, uh, inside the apple and the uh, digestive system has to break through those cell walls and get at the carbohydrate, which is much more slowly released. So there's less of a rapid rise in blood glucose levels, more sustained level, less demand for insulin. And so you would be worried that over the years, this high demand for insulin frequently, if you constantly ate that high glycemic kind of diet, could result in what we call, what we see as pancreatic exhaustion or type 2 diabetes, when the pancreas can no longer keep up producing the amount of insulin that's needed. So we've looked at this in our cohorts, and we see in all three of them the same picture, that first of all, there's a lower risk of type 2 diabetes with increasing amount of cereal fiber intake. And every study that's looked at this has seen the same thing. Again, probably not due to just the fiber, but probably partly due to the minerals and micronutrients that come along with the fiber. And then uh, we see with higher glycemic load, meaning higher amounts of rapidly absorbed carbohydrates, increasing risk. So the highest risk was in the women who consumed the highest glycemic load and lowest amount of cereal fiber. So you might ask, well, how did those women get such high glycemic load and low cereal fiber? The unfortunate thing is a lot of these women were trying to do the right thing. They were on these low-fat diets. They were eating all that stuff on the bottom of the pyramid that was refined carbohydrate. Uh, they were having things like low-fat yogurt, which, if you look at the label, usually contains a huge amount of sugar. They might have had these fat-free cookies, which, again, huge amounts of sugar and refined starch in them feel good because it was fat-free, uh, and so on. You could have easily gotten huge amounts of uh, sugar and refined carbohydrate following the low-fat diet that was being recommended. We've also seen that high intakes of glycemic load is related to higher risk of coronary heart disease, and not surprising that it creates the metabolic effects that are related to higher risk of heart disease. Now, I want to uh, talk a little bit then about the dairy and calcium area. Probably most of you have been told or heard that you should be drinking milk to provide the calcium because our bones need a lot of calcium and osteoporosis is a problem and we need to uh, uh, we can reduce our risk of osteoporosis and fractures by drinking large amounts, large amounts of milk. The reality is that there's been no studies that have shown that people who drink more milk have lower risk of fractures. And we had a, a very excellent uh, Swiss student uh, now back in Switzerland, Heike uh, uh, Bischoff, 
uh, did a meta-analysis where she combined the results of all the large prospective studies that looked at milk consumption and risk of fractures. And, and this is what she found. Uh, even with up to 30 glasses of milk per week, there was no hint of any reduction in risk of fractures compared to women who had less than one and a half glasses of milk per week. And if you looked at total calcium intake, basically saw the same picture. Now, why is this? Uh, the main reason is it looks like we really don't need as much calcium as has been uh, recommended by many groups. Uh, and uh, although I guess that in the UK it's actually quite different than in the US. The US recommends 1,200 milligrams of calcium per day. The UK recommends uh, 700 is adequate intake. Actually, I think that 700 is, is a, clearly a better number. The World Health Organization uh, had a committee which looked around the world and realized that people who, uh, populations who were not drinking milk at all, did not have any increased risk of fractures. And they came up with a conclusion that 500 milligrams a day of calcium is probably adequate intake, which you can get with a decent diet and maybe just a little, one, easily with one serving of dairy per day. You'll easily be getting 500 milligrams. So it's probably that we just need a lot less calcium than has been uh, suggested by some groups. Uh, I will uh, say, though, that uh, uh, there does seem to be a very important problem of inadequate vitamin D. And that could be a whole another hour or two of lecture. Uh, and for Scotland, that is likely to be a severe issue. That in the United States, we're finding about two-thirds of our population has inadequate amounts of uh, blood levels of vitamin D. And uh, I would be very surprised if that number was not even higher in Scotland. I don't know if there have any, been any recent surveys that have looked at that. But for milk intake, you might say, well, it, it won't prevent fractures, but it, uh, it's got lots of minerals and vitamins in there. It's still a lot of good nutrition. Why not recommend it anyway? Well. We can't assume that milk is uh, risk-free, uh, and it does look like there are some potential problems em emerging with high consumption of dairy products. And one area is a higher risk of prostate cancer, and particularly fatal prostate cancer, which of course is what we would prefer, form we'd prefer not to have. Uh, one of the first studies was the Seventh-day Adventist study, and in this population of men, there was about a 2.4-fold increased risk of prostate cancer, fatal prostate cancer in men drinking three or more glasses of milk per day. And we've seen a similar relationship in our own studies, and there are about, uh, about 10 studies now that have looked at this, and not everyone sees the same thing, but overall the evidence is actually quite strong that there is likely to be an increased risk of fatal prostate cancer with high dairy consumption. So I've covered quite a bit in a short time. Uh, very uh, very uh, superficially, perhaps, but uh, we've done some analyses uh, recently over the past few years that have looked at how much heart disease, how much cancer, and how much other major uh, other major health conditions we might prevent if we put together the various factors I've been talking about one at a time. And so to do this, we used here in the nurses' health study uh, that we defined a low risk group, and that low-risk group, of course, would be, uh, you would require, be required to be a non-smoker. And we said body mass index less than 25. It's better to be lower than that, but most people can get to that with some effort. 
and we said exercise one half hour a day of brisk walking or more. And we know it's better to do more than that, but again, we wanted to make this something that most people could achieve. And then we had a, a score for a good diet, and we said you had to be in the upper two quartiles, or meaning the upper half of the population, of a score based on low trans fat, higher polyunsaturated to saturated fat ratio in the diet, and the lower glycemic load, higher seal fiber intake, fish twice a week or more, and getting the RDA, or the recommended amount of folic acid. So this is a very uh, low bar to qualify, just be in the upper half of the population based on that score. And then this is obviously alcohol that I didn't go into this, but uh, it's a complicated issue, but at one or two drinks a day, clearly alcohol benefits uh, risk of coronary heart disease. It, uh, it increases breast cancer, we could talk about that, but it does complicate the issue. But uh, as an op this is an optional part. And we found that, uh, to our surprise, only 3.1% uh, of the women health professionals fell into this low-risk group. But we could calculate if everyone had adopted this low-risk pattern, then 82% of heart disease in the population would have been avoided by, uh, uh, would have been avoided by following this pattern. So it, it, does, it does appear that the large majority of heart disease is avoidable. And in some ways, we're just going back to the original slide I showed for Ansel Keys' study, uh, where it looked about 90% was avoidable there. But what we've done here is been able to focus in more on the specific aspects. And I think what's important is that these are things somebody can do now, today, in the 21st century. You don't have to be a Greek uh, peasant running up and down the mountains in Greece. You might like to do that, but we can't all do that. And you don't have to do that to prevent the vast majority of coronary heart disease. We've done, done a similar analysis for type 2 diabetes. And actually, all the, almost all of the risk factors are the same for type 2 diabetes. And there we calculated that 92% of type 2 diabetes could be prevented by this set of diet and lifestyle factors. And similarly, this is an, an analysis for colon cancer. And again, the list is very similar, although here red meat comes in as part of the picture uh, being related to uh, higher risk of colon cancer. And there we estimate that 71% of colon cancer could be prevented by this package of lifestyle variables. And just as an aside, the evidence is now very strong that if we get up to optimal vitamin D levels, that will have a strong additional benefit. And I suspect the number will be up around 85% or so of colon cancer that's avoidable if we also had optimal blood levels of vitamin D. So if we go back to the USDA pyramid, it appears that uh, this was really misleading in many ways. It ignored the critical differences in the type of fat. It really lumped together here foods in this group that have very different health implications. Uh, the evidence that we need to drink all of that milk is really not strong, and there, for men at least, uh, probably some negative aspects about having too much milk. And uh, they really did not give adequate attention to the form of carbohydrate in the diet, and probably overemphasized, certainly overemphasized consuming carbohydrates in relation to fat. Now, probably many of you have heard that in the U.S. Uh, there is a, a law that the uh, guidelines uh, need to be revised every five years, and they became so inconsistent with the food 
uh, guide pyramid, the guidelines started to emerge toward a, a, a better direction, but they were so inconsistent with the food guide pyramid that the food guide pyramid had to be withdrawn and replaced with this new pyramid, which is very pretty, but if anybody can understand what this is about what you should be eating, talk to me afterwards, please. It really does not convey any useful nutritional information, which is uh, an unfortunate loss of opportunity for education. So my colleagues and I thought we should try to fill the void with putting together what seemed to be a, a, what we thought would be a better pyramid. And it is challenging because there are tens of thousands of papers written on diet and health, and to boil it all down to one graphic really means you have to focus on a small number of factors that are the most important. And that is not totally straightforward. This is what we came up with. I'm sure it's possible to refine this and, fi and uh, fine tune it to be even better. But right at the bottom, we put daily exercise and weight control. It's clearly important in almost everybody well, because our lives don't naturally incorporate much exercise, we'll have to consciously add some to it. And then uh, the reality is that almost all of us are going to eat most of our calories from some combination of fat and carbohydrate. And it doesn't seem to really matter what the exact uh, breakdown, what percentage of fat or what percentage of carbohydrate we eat. What's really important is that it be healthy forms of carbohydrates, meaning whole grain, high fiber carbohydrates, in healthy forms of fat, and that includes virtually all of the liquid vegetable oils. And then fruits and vegetables in abundance is a good idea, but we put, took potatoes out of there. And then if you want to be a vegetarian, you can be very healthy getting your protein from nuts and legumes primarily, but if you don't want to be a vegetarian, adding in fish, poultry, eggs in moderation can be just as healthy from everything that we've seen and some, maybe even a little bit better. And this is, as I was mentioning, the dairy calcium area is the most complicated and still somewhat unsettled area, but I think it's pretty clear it's not essential that we have dairy products. And if we do, if someone does need more calcium, it's uh, probably uh, just as reasonable to get that as a supplement. There's no saturated fat, no calories come with a calcium supplement. Uh, but what's real clear is that we really should get some more vitamin, most of us should get some more vitamin D. And then up at the top in the use sparingly group, which I think is a good word for it, or a good term for it, because uh, we don't need to, if you like some of these foods, you don't need to totally eliminate, it, eliminate them, but just don't make them a part of everyday diet. And there, red meat and butter, it, I think, should be used sparingly. They are still high in saturated fat and cholesterol. But this is really the biggest difference and as we are getting trans fat out of the diet, this I think is really the biggest dietary uh, nutritional problem that we have is a huge amount of refined starch and sugar in our diets. And that would include things like white rice, white bread, white pasta, potatoes, soda, uh, which is a major problem, and uh, other forms of sugary sweets. And then off at the side, for most people, I think it does make sense to take a multiple vitamin. and but to really make sure that there's a good amount of vitamin D in there, and most of them don't yet have an adequate amount. They really should be having a thousand IUs of vitamin D in them. And alcohol is obviously optional, uh, but for some people in moderation that may be appropriate. For some people it's definitely not appropriate. So that's a quick overview, and if you do want to see some, here's, look at some of this in more detail, as Dr. 
uh, Professor Yearly mentioned, uh, I have put together a couple of books that are useful for the general, uh, meant for the general public. This is really the uh, book on how you do this kind of work. And this is uh, Eat, Drink, and Be Healthy was for the general public. And then with Molly Katzen, who's a, a well-known cookbook writer in the United States, uh, Eat, Drink, and Weigh Less. Uh, I apologize for this brazen commercial. And if you buy these books, there's, there's no money back. Uh, but I do guarantee that each one of them has 80 grams of fiber. And so if you buy them, you decide they're not worth the paper they're printed on, you can get out your food processor and uh, run them through. And if you have some good olive oil and fresh basil, they're, they're really not too bad. So thank you. Okay, that was um, a really wonderful lecture and uh, just uh, so much to be ashamed about and to, uh, <laughs> and to uh, take away and remember and to live by. Um, we're a little tight on time, but I still want to give people uh, an opportunity to uh, ask any burning questions they have. And there's a woman at the front there who is terribly keen. Could you just wait for the mic? My name is Caroline Carlock. I wanted to ask you, or if you could comment on the work done by Dennis Burkett. Mm -hmm. I'm presuming that you're familiar with him. Mm -hmm. um, I met him in the 60s. I'm 64, mm -hmm. and um, he advocated. I didn't see any of his research, but he advocated more or less the things that you're advocating. Mm -hmm. In fact, he went round Britain with a hotel chain to mm -hmm. and cooked and showed people what to eat. Mm -hmm. It obviously hasn't made it any difference, and we. N I never hear. Dennis Burkett's name um, mentioned at all. Mm -hmm. And you, I noticed in the graph you didn't talk about Africa, mm -hmm. but maybe that you can't do every country. But mm -hmm. I thought that he obviously, um, his um, research was very valuable because he found less mm -hmm. coronary, out, coronary disease, diabetes, etc., etc., mm -hmm. the same as you did. And I just wondered if, mm -hmm. why he's never yeah. talked about these days. Or right. Maybe he is. Yeah, I, I think it turns out he was probably right, but in, in some respects, and uh, clearly one of the main thing, the things he emphasized was higher fiber in the diet. Uh, but uh, in some sense, he was doing the kind of study like Keyes did, but uh, Keyes in that, his work was really much, much more rigorous methodologically. They really did have standard criteria for documenting rates of disease, standardized methods for measuring diet. So I think that the level of rigor was much, much stronger than with Burkett. And that for many of the things that, uh, some of the, the fiber, for example, and colon cancer, which he emphasized, the evidence hasn't really supported that so clearly. And there are uh, other major factors why in Africa rates of heart disease and colon cancer are, are much lower, uh, the level of physical activity being very important for those diseases and, uh, and also being very, very lean as well, turns out. So uh, uh, that, that, that's, that's really why. It's a okay, I, I think we need to take the next question with the gentleman there. Uh, hello. Okay, so uh, I wanted to ask about uh, the difference, like are some foods more healthy for certain people and, but not for others, and about, also about food allergies. So, for example, the, the ability to digest dairy products seems to be dep uh, dependent on our genetic m makeup we have and seems to vary between different populations and also change over time. Uh, it's like evolved over time. So, some, my, I'm wondering, uh, so kind of 
uh, can you say something about like food allergies? Why why do they occur? Kind of and uh, certain foods seems to be very harmful f to certain people, and uh, and uh, yeah. So and uh, and something about like is there some kind of reasons to think that certain <coughs> amounts of certain foods are like kind of more healthy to 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 certain people? Okay. Uh, Fantastic question. Can you give a pretty brief answer, do you think? Okay, well, that's in a few hours there, but I'll try. The food allergies are re really still poorly understood. And we, for instance, peanuts uh, allergies uh, is a big issue now. We actually don't really have good data that's increasing the perception is, uh, but we uh, don't understand why some people have it and others don't. Uh, and we don't even know what, so there's strong recommendations in the U.S. now that uh, mothers while they're pregnant and while they're nursing should not eat peanuts because they might generate peanut allergy. There's no evidence to support that. It could even be the opposite. I mean, we're just really ignorant in this area. There's a bigger question you're asking about uh, how diet affects some people differently than others. Uh, and that's the whole big area of gene-environment interaction, uh, which we and many others are looking at, whether uh, some people have should be eating a diet different than other people. And with a few exceptions, there's still not much evidence to emerge on that. The one area that has become pretty clear is that people who have more insulin resistance uh, should eat less low, high glycemic foods. In other words, should eat fewer carbohydrates and be much more careful about the glycemic index. So who has more insulin resistant? Mostly people who are overweight, but also, very importantly, most Asian populations have a, a greater susceptibility to insulin resistance. And uh, when they slow down and live a more urban life, are more predisposed to diabetes. So that's, on a global basis, that's a really big issue. Okay, that's a fantastic answer. And we have one final question. Young woman's from. Um, I was wondering if you would recommend the same food pyramid for children or growing mm -hmm. young people. And in particular, I was thinking about the milk mm -hmm. and if young children would also maybe not need to drink as much milk. Mm -hmm. And then I was also, um, your book is excellent, I've read it. Um, but I was wondering if um, there's a book for children that they could read that would mm -hmm. um, follow the same lines you've talked about. Uh, Yes, um, that's a good question. For, for the most part, it would be the same for children. Uh, there is this question about how much calcium children need compared to adults. And uh, it is pretty clear that children do need more calcium than adults because they are actually adding to, need to be adding to their bones. Exactly how much isn't clear, though, that uh, it, it gets into a really interesting area that uh, it may be that high dairy consumption actually increases fractures as an adult because uh, one of the things that dairy does is make, uh, make us gain, weight, gain height more rapidly. It accelerates longitudinal growth. And so if you drink more milk, you end up taller. And if you're taller, you're more susceptible to fractures because, uh, number one, you fall a greater distance, and number two, it, it's... Um, yeah, if you have a, you know if you have a long stick, it's easier to break than a short stick. So there, it's ironic that there, uh, how high amounts of milk actually could be uh, increasing risk of fractures later in life. So finding the sort of sweet spot where you get enough calcium but not too much milk is a challenge. And I think it's more likely to be in sort of like one or two glasses of milk a day, not three, four, or five glasses a day. But we don't know the exact number yet. 
There, there, a, a book for kids, one of my colleagues, uh, Alan Walker, wrote a book called Eat, Play, and Be Healthy. <laughs> okay, I, um, I'm with sincere regrets having to draw this to a, a close, partly because we have some uh, salmon high in omega-3 uh, <laughs> waiting for our, our speaker later on this evening. We don't want it to be uh, uh, decomposing and burned. Um, <laughs> Uh, but I would now like to call Professor McMahon, who's going to uh, close events in a formal kind of way. Thank you. Not too formal, I hope. Um, if you had told me this morning that I was going to spend this evening looking at slides of a trans fat sculpting competition, <laughs> I would not have believed you. But I'm highly delighted to have, um, to have seen that contribution to our general knowledge. Um, what do you think then? Is it the sunshine and cereal diet? Is that what we're hearing um, being advocated here? I think we could do that, couldn't we? That sounds quite reasonable. Um, and generally, um, what I would like to do is just to thank our speaker, um, first for having indulged in all the 21st century living necessary to fly all the way from Harvard to come and see us here. Um, it's been a terrifically um, helpful lecture, lots of information for us to take away, very thought-provoking, and also very approachable. And I will long treasure the picture of you stir-frying your book at the, um, at the end. Um, so I'd like to ask you to do two things, please. The first is um, to go forth and eat salad dressing. And the second is to join me in heartily thanking our chair, but especially our speaker. Thank you.